Welcome to Fertility and Sterility On Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS On Air is brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of FNS Unplugged. I'm your co-host, Pietro Bordletto. I'm joined by my usual cast of characters, Dalon James and Blake Evans. Dalon and Blake, how are you two? Very well. Good to be with you guys. This character is doing great. Excellent to see you all. And if you've been paying attention to the podcast at all, you've noticed that it's always kind of been these three clowns that have been talking about the excellent research in FNS science reports and reviews our listeners are in for a real treat. We're finally adding a voice of wisdom, of knowledge, of in-depth analysis to our research. And you've heard her before, but welcome to the podcast formally as now no longer a guest host, but a recurring co-host of the podcast, Dr. Molly Cornfield. Thanks, Pietro. I'm excited to be here. No, no one's more excited than Dalon, Blake, and I, I guarantee it. But our listeners should also be excited because Molly's really going to focus on kind of the fourth arm of fertility and sterility. We have our three sister journals. We have the main journal. But the whole section of Consider This Articles has really been something that's developed um, over the course of the last several years. is just a, a rich area of original content stuff that doesn't fit classically into the journal. And like I told you on the previous podcast, is now being highlighted on the main FNS website since we've sunsetted the Dialogue website. So it's a really cool opportunity for not only our listeners to submit stuff, but also Molly to be able to share what you guys are all writing in the Consider This section of Fertility and Sterility. And with Molly being the latest addition to the podcast, I want to start with her and start by having Molly tell us a little bit about which article she selected from the Consider This section. Thanks for that great intro, Pietro. So I'm so excited to share our first ever Consider This article on the Unplugged podcast today. The title of the article I chose is Some Caution About DHEA Supplementation by Drs. Norbert Gleicher and David Barad at the Center for Human Reproduction in New York City. I'm always interested in seeing what's coming out of the Center for Human Reproduction. Their center specializes in very challenging IVF cases, advanced maternal age, diminished ovarian reserve for responders. And some of my practices when I'm caring for these patients have been informed by some of their publications. So I was interested in what they were writing today. I liked this article because the flexibility of the Consider This format allows the authors to informally give us an update on how they're practicing since their prior published research. And it can be a mix of evidence-based information, which is mostly what we look at in FNS, but they have the ability to add some anecdotal experience and personal expertise. So for the listeners who aren't REIs, this article is about DHEA. DHEA is a hormone produced by the adrenal glands and the ovaries, and it's an essential precursor to the production of androgens, including testosterone, as well as estradiol. And DHEA can also be taken as a supplement that can be recommended in some IVF clinics for very AMA or DOR patient populations. And the authors actually cite that it's utilized in 50% of IVF cycles. A prior study I saw from maybe 10 years ago said 25%, so it's probably somewhere in that range. DHEA may improve IVF cycle outcomes in some patients as androgens appear to have an important role in early follicular growth and development. But as we've discussed previously on this podcast, when androgens are too high, they can have a pretty detrimental effect on folliculogenesis and oocyte quality. So it's really a balance. 
The authors of the Consider This piece talk about the initial DHEA dosing they use, 25 milligrams three times a day, which is what is used in most of the published literature from their group. In these authors' practice, they actually monitor patients on DHEA with an androgen panel and then adjust supplementation. And that's why they wrote their Consider This article today. They wanted to update FNS readers that they've noticed that many of their patients are starting to come in with pretty high serum androgen levels on the same dosing post-COVID, particularly patients with lower BMIs. And they've actually had to drop this DHEA dosing for many patients. They hypothesize that it could be related to increased potency of DHEA raw materials used to produce DHEA post-pandemic, but they can't really find evidence that there have been significant changes in production, and they haven't actually done a comparison between DHEA pre- and post-pandemic. They haven't held two pills side-by-side side and done an analysis of that, so it's pretty hypothetical. But the concept of the article is simple. Hey, we think the supplement is a little more potent than it used to be. Let's readjust how we're administering, monitoring, and dosing it. And the authors are still suggesting starting at that higher dose, but then checking an androgen panel, turning down the dosing if needed prior to an IVF cycle. I think this really speaks to the greater discussions happening around supplements and differences that can occur from batch to batch, branch to brand, particularly with some of the disruptions in supply chains from the pandemic. I always remind my patients, not all supplements are going to be beneficial just because you bought them at a health food store and just because they're called supplements. And some could even be harmful, as in the case of taking too much DHEA. And we may not know the concentration of what they're actually getting because supplements just aren't regulated the same way that drugs or medications are. So we really have to be careful when we're recommending supplements to patients or if they're coming to us already taking a long list of supplements, how are we guiding them in choosing what to continue or what not to? In my practice, I use DHA supplementation for patients with a high FSH level, but I'm not usually checking or rechecking androgens in the majority of situations. So that was interesting to me about the practice of these authors. A downside could be that if you're checking androgens and tweaking doses, you're definitely adding costs and some delay to the start of IVF cycle. But when I am developing the protocol for a poor prognosis IVF cycle, I think these little tweaks do become more important or relevant and could be worth increased time or costs for that individual compared to your general infertility patient population. When we're talking about IVF add-ons that have mixed evidence, DHEA is a lot less expensive than many of them. But once we're adding monthly lab tests, like an entire androgen panel, that can get more expensive quickly. So brings me to questions for you guys. Are you using DHEA in your practice? If so, how are you choosing which patients to use it for? If you're using it, are you rechecking levels of androgen panels or are you adjusting the doses? And did anything in this consider this piece change how you think about DHEA or how you practice? And then a question just for day long so you can feel included. Do you buy the science on DHEA supplementation improving folliculogenesis? Since I would argue the data is somewhat mixed. I think this is an easy answer for me. I'm a notable curmudgeon when it comes to supplements. My answer is no. I've never recommended it to a patient. The idea of checking a level of a supplement that has a weak evidence base kind of feels like insult to injury, honestly, to me. And that may be outlandish for some of the listeners who do prescribe DHEA, but the data is not convincing that it works. And then I'm titrating to a level that I have no kind of reference range for a therapeutic effect aside from what like the normal range looks like in the non-infertile, non-ovary stimulation patient, to me, it just doesn't make good sense. So I don't use it. Um, I don't know, Blake, is your experience different in the Midwest? No, you literally said exactly what I was going to say. Honestly, a lot of my patients just kind of show up to my office on it already from some blog they've read or a friend that 
took it and they got pregnant the first time they took DHEA. You know how that goes. So I don't tell them to get off of it. I kind of have the same canned recommendation for all of these supplements. And that's kind of what you had alluded to, Molly, in that there's so many different variables in these supplements and they're not regulated by the FDA. The data is very scarce, uh, if anything, for a lot of these. And although it's unlikely to be too harmful. I, I totally agree with you, Pietro. Do you really want to have this patient come in? I'm just imagining her coming in two days and I'm going to check your uh, DHEA levels and we'll increase your, your medication. Does that, I don't know. It seems very extreme for limited data that's out there. So hopefully that doesn't offend anyone that's a listener who's really wanting to prescribe this medication, but I, I just don't think the data is there to back that up. Yeah, I think our first charges first do no harm, and I don't know that there's a convincing amount of safety data to suggest that early embryonic, early first trimester exposure to these androgens, effectively, right, are safe. I think we want supplements to work so deep down inside, and typically when we're talking about supplementation, it means we're kind of grasping for straws, right? Uh, we're not doing that in our egg freezers. We're not doing it in our first-time IVF patients, but... Um, Dylan, do you think we should be reconsidering DHA for folliculogenesis as... Do you think there's something there with how oral supplementation of androgens affects intra-ovarian androgen levels? Yeah, well, for sure. I mean, availability is, is the key, and I think it does play a role. I mean, the science in controlled animal models suggests that androgen deficiency is going to be an issue, right? And supplementation can address that. But, you know, that's in systems that are really far from the clinical context. And I think you got to look case by case at best. In a, in a human population, when you're thinking of, of add-ons and, I mean, listening to what you guys are saying, I think it's less about whether or not this is going to be effective as an add-on or whether you're not going to satisfy the patient, but what's the potential risk? And, and I think that that really rings true to me is that if a patient is is looking to take matters into their own hands based on anecdotal evidence or their advice to their friends, I think it's the place for you guys to step in there and be like, look, there's a cost and a potential risk to this, and I would not advise it. But I mean, in terms of the science, the input for androgens and fertility, is it's multifactorial and I think murky, particularly when you try and apply the, the lessons learned from animal models, small animal models, rodents, polyovulatory to patients. I mean, and, and the data from primates, it's there, but I'm no expert in that particular focus. But I think the data there also has a long way to go in terms of being really convincing that supplementation of androgens in a typical IVF cycle is going to be recommended. Well, let's uh, let's move away from consider this because I think we've all considered the role of DHEA and hopefully our listeners are too. Thanks, Molly, for sharing that article with us. Blake, let's move from consider this to FNS reviews. What do you have this month for us? Thank you, Pietro. My article I'm presenting is searching for the optimal number of oocytes to reach a live birth. After in vitro fertilization, a systematic review and meta-analysis. By the time this podcast is out, we will have done our Journal Club Global with the authors of this paper hosted by our fellowship program here at OU. So I decided to go ahead and talk about this. I think it's a very clinically relevant study. And so here we go. So background on this controlled ovarian stimulation as we know, is utilized in IVF cycles to increase the number of mature oocytes available to maximize the number of available embryos. As I say to all of my patients, especially now that Roe versus Wade has been overturned and many states have utilized personhood bills that are being introduced, there's a large amount of attrition that happens that goes from the mature egg to ultimately a live birth. 
and therefore very, very few fertilized eggs ultimately lead to a live birth. And so we have to be careful when we talk about these personhood bills because of this natural attrition that we experience on a daily basis. It's not as easy as these politicians put it, but that's a soapbox I won't get on today. That's not why we're here. But the optimal number of oocytes that's necessary to expect a live birth varies depending on what study you read. A higher number of oocytes retrieved is associated with risk factors that we're well aware of as REI, such as ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. And some studies indicate that there's also an association with decreased oocyte quality with a higher number of oocytes, as well as impaired endometrial receptivity due to supraphysiologic estradiol levels. And as frozen embryo transfer cycles become more and more common in modern day IVF practices for various reasons, the cumulative live birth rate is now considered as one of the leading indicators for IVF success. And this is calculated after subsequent transfer of all fresh and frozen thawed embryos from a single egg retrieval cycle. With that being said, a higher number of mature oocytes is associated with higher cumulative live birth rate, but what is the magic number that we should all strive for as IVF physicians, and should we adjust our STEM protocols to achieve said magic number? So this study aims to assess the relationship between number of oocytes obtained during IVF cycles and both the live birth rate after fresh embryo transfer cycle as well as the cumulative live birth rate. How did they look at this? They did a systematic review and meta-analysis, including studies of women undergoing egg retrieval for IVF or for PRES purposes. And they also reported live birth rate according to the number of mature oocytes or retrieved oocytes. They looked at articles published from 2004 to 2021, and then they looked at mean weighted thresholds of the optimal oocyte number that was estimated from documented thresholds, followed by a meta-analysis. They did several sensitivity analyses as well to perform adjusting for female age. So what did they find? They looked at 1,600 articles that were screened, ultimately included 45 studies that were eligible for assessment. They initially described the live birth rate after fresh transfer. The only three studies evaluated the relationship between mature oocytes and live birth rate, and thus a meta-analysis could not be done on mature oocytes and live birth rate in a fresh transfer. So they looked at the total number of oocytes retrieved, which included mature and immature, and ultimately had over 1 million patients included throughout all these different studies, which also included over 3 million IVF cycles on four different continents. They looked at a pooled dose outcome that revealed that the live birth rate after a fresh embryo transfer increases with increasing oocyte number, but reached a plateau after about 15 oocytes retrieved. And there's even a slight decline that they had seen beyond 20 to 25 oocytes. Then when they assessed the number of oocytes in cumulative live birth rate, uh, there was again only three studies. They evaluated mature oocytes, so they used the total number of oocytes that included the immature and mature oocyte numbers. So they had with this a total of over 600,000 patients and over 900,000 cycles that they ultimately evaluated, and a pooled dose outcome revealed that cumulative live birth rate increased with increasing oocyte number but continuing to increase beyond 15 oocytes rather than plateauing. So the authors conclude that above a threshold of 15 oocytes, the live birth rate after fresh embryo transfer likely plateaus. In contrast, the cumulative live birth rate, there's a, a continuous increase beyond 15 oocytes. And so the authors suggest there should be a careful evaluation of the benefit and risk performed before implementing a high gonadotropin starting dose in routine practice. 
And so I have a few comments regarding this, especially coming from a practice that performs a lot of fresh embryo transfers. And so I want to just kind of give you guys my thoughts. So if live birth rate plateaus after 15 oocytes in a fresh transfer cycle versus continues to increase past 15, if no fresh transfer performed, could live birth rate be optimized by not performing a fresh transfer and only doing frozen transfers? This seems to make sense if we consider possible adverse effects of a fresh transfer cycle, such as OHSS, like I mentioned, decreased endometrial receptivity, if we suspect that superphysiologic estradiol levels do in fact play a role, and possibly decreased oocyte quality, as the authors had alluded to. Now, there are actually a fair number of studies that corroborate these findings in this study, including a recent publication of this month's FNS by Fanton et al. that had over 400,000 IVF cycles comprised from START data. So again, as an REI working in a state that does not have mandated IVF insurance coverage, we do a lot of fresh embryo transfers with overall very good live birth rates that we're proud of. And although I'm not discounting the findings of this study at all, and I do think this is very valuable information, I do want to point out a couple of things that are food for thought. So for example, if for the couple who only wants one to two children and are paying out of pocket, which is a lot of my patients in Oklahoma, I'm going to be pretty reluctant to do a freeze all and do only a frozen embryo transfer cycle just because they have more than 15 oocytes and they're at a good prognosis for a fresh transfer. They could have very well gotten pregnant and delivered in that fresh transfer cycle and save the additional cost of a frozen embryo transfer cycle and the delayed time to getting pregnant if we decide to do a freeze-all approach. With that being said, we have to also keep in mind the cost effectiveness if we're doing a routine freeze-all approach. Again, things that transitioning from fellowship in a state where everything was mandated coverage to Oklahoma where hardly anything is covered, this is something I have to keep in mind daily. So also for a couple of planning a fresh transfer, let's say just for financial reasons, do I as the physician need to take a more gentle stimulation approach and try to obtain less than 15 oocytes? In doing so, how much am I really improving the live birth rate, but also ultimately limiting the cumulative live birth rate because now I have fewer embryos to work with. And I'm almost done with my rant, I promise. But in light of that thought too, so figure three in this paper looks at the relative risk of live birth rate with fresh transfer plotted against the number of oocytes retrieved. And because on a y-axis, it's a log scale and the relative risk can sometimes be a little difficult to interpret in terms of the absolute impact of live birth rate with a fresh transfer, I'm curious how these numbers stack up. And so for example, Let's say a patient has a 45% chance of live birth rate with a fresh single embryo transfer, assuming the patient has 15 to 20 eggs retrieved versus 30. So when you look at the graph, it looks like the relative risk goes just slightly lower from like 3.5 to 3.2. And so when I'm counseling a patient regarding this decrease, how much does that really matter? Does it really make cost effectiveness? Uh, does it make sense to do that? And so this is something I plan to discuss with the authors at the Journal Club because I'm curious as to their thoughts. And so these are just some thoughts I had as I'm going through this paper. I'll, uh, I'll get off my soapbox. I know I just spent a lot of our time, but I felt like these were important highlights to discuss in terms of if we're applying this clinically. So I'm interested to hear your thoughts, guys. Like, I think I have a similar experience. I'm in a mandated state, but I still have to kind of abide by insurance rules and how to kind of optimize exactly like you said, their cumulative live birth from a single retrieval cycle, particularly when we're at the beginning of family building, not kind of in the middle or towards the end of completing their family building. And I think the sweet spot really is the fresh transfer with the cryo of the surplus embryos. I like the strategy of giving patients the opportunity to get pregnant with that cycle. One, if it's going to be safe, 
I'm a chicken when it comes to OHSS. I don't want to see it. I don't want patients to have it. So my threshold for firewall is pretty low. But I think there's also good data that you've published on, uh, Micah Hill's published on, and just looking at progesterone rises and using that as a discriminator for when to go forward with the fresh transfer and when to to bail and, and go cryo all to kind of maximize the success of that first transfer attempt. I think it starts with our stimulation. If we're thoughtful about our starting dose, we're thoughtful about how we stimulate the ovaries. You leave fresh transfer on the table as a safe and very viable option for the right patient. But I think if we're not careful, we're not tweaking our dose, we're not being thoughtful about what's coming at the end of the cycle, you really miss out on the opportunity to, to get that patient pregnant in that cycle. I really like this review article. I think it was, it's great. It's thought-provoking. The only annoyance I have is like, yeah, it'd be great if I could feather the stim to get right at 14 eggs and not a single one more. If only we had that much power. Maybe the folks at Serono or Merck do, but I don't know that I can feather it like that. Well, let's keep going. We're going to move on from FNS reviews and we're going to go over to FNS science. Dalen, you have something that's kind of a not consider this related, not fresh transfer related. Tell us about your article. Well, there is a bit of a segue here and talking about the economy of IVF and maximizing the success rate in these patients who don't have a good outcome in that first fresh transfer. And you know, we all know that a period of oocyte maturation is required leading up to ovulation during which meiosis is completed to generate a competent oocyte. We've also known for almost 60 years that human oocytes isolated at pre-ovulatory stages can undergo maturation in vitro, known as in vitro maturation or IVM. And since 1991, which was the first time it was done, we've been able to generate pregnancies from in vitro matured oocytes. In fact, IVM is deliberately leveraged clinically to reduce the risk of OHSS in PCOS patients. In those protocols, oocytes are recovered without the application of an exogenous ovulatory trigger and then matured in vitro. And then, of course, there's rescue IVM, where the attempt is made to salvage the immature oocytes obtained at retrieval following a trigger, an exogenous trigger. But here's the thing. Uh, the first thing you do uh, in embryology is denude the cumulus cells from the oocyte. So the essential biological support role that those cumulus cells play in fostering oocyte maturation is lost. You know, that juxtacrine communication stream connecting cumulus cells to oocyte via those gap junctions are severed. Many studies have shown that co-culture of immature oocytes with cumulus cells confers a benefit, increased maturation, fertilization, embryo development, et cetera. So it seems like restoring some semblance of the cumulus-derived input can improve rescue IVM, but there's a catch, right? Uh, rescue IVM is less effective for immature oocytes after they've been cryopreserved and thawed than it is for fresh immature oocytes. And that's how we come to this paper I'm presenting from Catherine Gordon and Catherine Rakowski at the Brigham. As with many decisions in assisted reproduction, the rationale for rescue IBM can come down to a matter of cost. Not as effective post-thaw, uh, and it incurs a cost, right? So for poor responders or women undergoing oocyte cryopreservation in advance of gonadotoxic therapies, for example, justifying that cost is a no-brainer. But for women undergoing social freezing or freezing extra oocytes in the context of a typical cycle like we've been talking about here, Rescue IVM is most often a, an unnecessary expense, right? Most patients aren't going to go out of pocket for that. But what if the patient runs out of cryopreserved oocytes that are mature? If we aren't going to pay for rescue IVM on the front end, 
Should we be saving all these immature oocytes, freezing them nonetheless for patients anyway to attempt to rescue post-thaw in some cases? This was the question the study set out to address, a very simple, straightforward question with powerful methods using a randomized controlled trial. 320 total post-thaw immature oocytes were divided evenly between 160 GV and 160 M1 stage. They were randomized to co-culture either with or without autologous cumulus cells that were cryopreserved alongside those oocytes. And those oocytes were cultured for either 32 hours in the case of GV or 20 to 22 hours in the case of the M1 phase, followed by measurement of progression to M2, parthenogenetic activation, blastulation, spindle morphology, and chromosome alignment. There was a bit of nuance to the results, and I recommend to our listeners that they have a look for themselves. But the bottom line was that co-culture in this system, at least, did not improve rescue IVM of vitrified and thawed immature oocytes. So the takeaway here may be negative, but uh, or a negative result, at least, no difference. But I like to cast it in a different light, the same light that every you know, hardworking scientist out there knows too well, which is a, this isn't a failure as much as it is the elucidation of a method that doesn't work to rescue thawed immature oocytes, right? That old Thomas Edison saw. And that's to say that I wouldn't give up on this path. One thing lacking in these cultures is the three-dimensional architecture that is more akin to the follicle. Uh, and indeed, previous work has shown that a combination of immature oocytes and cumulus cells in a 3D matrix has a benefit. For me, these studies are so critical because they provide systems and conceptual insights that will help to push back the clock even further on follicular genesis. And for me, ultimately, uh, the idea is, and the holy grail is that if we can sufficiently extend the range of IVM, we may be able to recover oocytes from follicles matured from early preantral, perhaps even primordial stage follicles, which would be a tremendous boon for assisted reproduction across the board. Guys, what do you think? I mean, this is a pretty straightforward study. Doesn't work uh, to, to do post-thaw rescue IBM, but what, what role does rescue IBM play in your practices? And do you think that there's a rationale for doing rescue IBM on some patients pre-freeze? Not going to lie. I've been trying to think about what I'm going to say about this paper. And i I'm kind of like, I don't, I don't really have, <laughs> I'm trying I've left you guys speechless. Well, you know, <laughs> a, an impressive negative result like this can be pretty mind boggling, but I, it's important here to consider that these methods are evolving, right? The, the field is living and breathing. And I mean, what do we do for these patients when they run out of eggs and, and they're not really amenable to continued stimulation cycles? You're talking about how, you know, with the insurance being an issue and whatnot, Maybe there's a rationale for leaving these so-called poor quality eggs on ice. You know, the whole idea of freezing your head uh, after you're dead, because maybe in a thousand years, they'll come up, goodbye, come along with some tech. You know, do you think that embryologists out there are going to hate you for this? But you think we should be freezing immature eggs? I'd like to just comment on the freezing the head part. You can count me as a plus one on that. I'd be interested if the technology gets there. Elon, if you're listening, let's talk. But to your question, uh, Dalon, about... Um, should we be freezing some of these immature eggs? I think that's the story of our field in recent years. We're realizing that there's probably a lot of wastage that happens with our cycles. If you rewind the clock just a couple of years ago, no one was really doing day seven blast freezing, but now that's kind of an increasing part of our practice and it's acceptable. And we realize that there's pregnancies that are coming out of those day seven blasts. 
people used to not be freezing BC grade blasts, then we've realized that the pregnancy rates are also pretty good with BCs or CB grade embryos. Uh, mosaic embryos, I think another kind of story here. There's a lot that we were limiting ourselves and giving patients more and more attempts at uh, pregnancy by just not being thoughtful about what we're keeping, what we're throwing away. And I wouldn't be surprised if we go the, the route where we actually start freezing a whole lot more M1s and GVs. In my practice, I freeze M1s and M2s. I don't freeze GVs, but my lab allows me to have the option to freeze GVs. I think once the technology is just a little bit better and I know for sure that it's going to be a an action, a useful uh, tissue that's frozen for them, then I think I probably will. But I think the March, we're headed there as a field. We're, we're getting better about not wasting our shot with this, these tissues that took a lot of time, money, and effort to, to develop. Agree with Pietro. For a patient with 20 M2s, we probably won't need those M1s or GVs, but in an oncofertility patient where you just got a few M2s and that's your only shot, I definitely want those M1s frozen. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say too. I mean, I always, I always hate it when I have a fur prize patient come through and they have just such a lopsided ratio of M2s and M1s, but that's their shot. You know, you, you do what you can and they start chemo here in a few days. And so it'd be wonderful. We have a way to enhance the quality of these eggs and ultimately get M2s to utilize in these patients. All right, let's do a hard pivot away from GVs and M1s and let's talk about sperm. Sperm DNA fragmentation what is it good for? Question mark. Absolutely nothing. Question mark. I wish you could see my eyes and eyebrows while I'm reading this, but I know we've talked a lot about on this podcast and in our field about the increasing rise of DNA fragmentation evaluation and therapies to help reduce DNA fragmentation. And I think that's because we all understand that DNA integrity is crucial for fertilization. It's crucial for normal embryo development. The sperm goes through kind of a whole lot on its way from production all the way to actually being ejaculated. And there's kind of extensive molecular remodeling that's happening to its nucleus during spermatogenesis that is supposed to protect its genetic content. But as it makes its way through the testicle and out of the testicle, there's a lot of stuff that can beat up that DNA. Um, things like intrinsic errors in maturation, environmental things, there's behavioral things. And rightfully so, there's been a lot of publications that have looked at the predictive value of elevated DNA fragmentation and IVF outcomes. Our listeners know Molly as a fellow, you know this, but we know that early embryonic development prior to that maternal zygotic transition doesn't appear to be affected by sperm DNA fragmentation levels, but following that transition from a cleavage stage to a blastocyst, that's really where a lot of data and time and energy has been focused on looking at what's the sperm doing, what's the paternal contribution to this embryo doing, and this is where people started to notice higher rates of embryo rest, embryo quality, slower blast formation rates. But unfortunately, a lot of this data that we have is kind of in the pre, the early vitrification era, number one, in non-modern day culture conditions, number two, but then three, not in the modern day of PGTA where we're doing next generation sequencing. So we have the ability to not only look at this question again with fresh set of eyes to see is fertilization rate really a thing with DNA fragmentation? Is blast formation rate really a thing? But also looking at the blasts that we do make, are the blasts any different from an embryo quality perspective, but also from a chromosomal abnormality perspective? So this study is kind of cool because it was conducted at a single private practice in 2018 over a six month period. And they enrolled 166 couples of which 150 of them actually completed their cycle. And 133 of those patients had blasts that were available for biopsy for a total of 480. Then these were all eggs that were either injected or inseminated. They did allow for ejaculated sperm, but also for surgically retrieved sperm. And I think that's an asterisk that I'll place there because, Blake, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about DNA fragmentation and testicular extracted sperm. 
But all the sperm was analyzed for DNA fragmentation index via SDFA testing for both the pre and post processing sperm sample. And they also measured oxidative stress levels via the OSA test. I'm not going to bore you with the details, but really the big takeaway of the study is that they found that sperm DNA fragmentation index in the ejaculate did not predict embryo quality, did not predict blastulation rates, and did not predict euploidy rates in those blastocysts that were available for testing. The one thing that was significant between the groups that had elevated, medium elevation, low elevation, and normal levels of DNA fragmentation was just fertilization rates, both in the ICSI and the insemination groups, which isn't new news. We've kind of known that about sperm with elevated DNA fragmentation. So in a modern setting with kind of modern day embryology practices and next generation sequencing for PGTA, we didn't really notice that the fragmentation mattered a whole lot. And I know there's, we kind of, it's the yin and yang for DNA fragmentation data. Some studies say it's absolutely crucial and you definitely need to be doing stuff about it. And a lot of the data says it doesn't. And when they actually transfer these blasts, they notice that the pregnancy rates and miscarriage rates are the same. So I think adds to the growing body of data, continues the debate about what do we do with elevated DNA fragmentation. And my question for Molly and Blake, since you guys actually sometimes have to have conversations about, should we check a DNA fragmentation? What do we do when it is elevated? Blake, how does this fit into your practice? Are you checking DNA fragmentation levels? And if so, when? And I'll follow that up with the third part of my question is, what do you do with them? Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like we keep coming back to this conversation often with DNA fragmentation because everyone wants to, wants to test it. They want to know, is it elevated? What do we do with it? We know that the most recent recommendations are to not get it routinely, which is a question I had on this study too. I mean, these these are patients that you would not have otherwise just gotten a DNA fragmentation is it someone who has recurrent pregnancy loss in which now the AUA is saying we should get it on these patients? And to answer your question, that's usually whenever I recommend it. Otherwise, I admittedly am not getting it in patients, to be honest. But when you do and it's elevated, what do you do with it? What's, kind yeah. of, what's, your, what's your thing? Yeah, well, that's why I don't get it. So I don't have to be in this conundrum of what do I do with an elevated DNA fragmentation? But in all seriousness, our urologists, he'll sometimes get it in the presence of a varicocele? Do you repair it? Do you not? If you don't have a varicocele, do you repair it? Do you put them on antioxidants? We've talked about in the past is DNA fragmentation. Is it like more of a binomial thing? Do you Is it elevated? Yes or no? Or is it more of a continuous spectrum on is 33% different than 57%? And if so, to what degree? And what do you even do about that? So I, I don't get it routinely, I'll be honest. And so and one other thing too, I, I was curious about when we were going through this is this is one DNA fragmentation test, whereas there's what, like four or five different ones. So if my clinic is using the halo sperm assay, whereas a different clinic is using the SCSA assay, you know, does that Comet, make Comet, tunnel, pick your poison. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many different kinds. So I think like I mentioned a couple of podcast episodes ago, I think something's there with DNA fragmentation. There's more and more data starting to mount, but we still just don't really know yet. Yeah, I wish we were all speaking the same language because it's DNA fragmentation is an umbrella term. Different tests are testing different things. I mean, not all fragmented DNA is the same. We have single-stranded DNA breaks. We have double-stranded DNA breaks. And the relative contribution of one versus the other probably matters, but we're not really digging into that a whole lot. And then once you find yourself in the situation where, hey, you have, and I'm using air quotes here, elevated DNA fragmentation, you have to choose something to do with it. You can't test it and then not act on it. I think that's that's probably going to frustrate patients a heck of a lot more. And are you using microfluidics, using antioxidants? Dalon, maybe you want to chime in here because the Cornell experience, I think, is kind of unique 
where DNA fragmentation is much more of a, a thing at Cornell. What do you think? Well, yes, uh, DNA fragmentation is a big thing here, considering that we have, you know, the inventor of ICSI here, very focused on sperm, but I can't speak to it. I have nothing to say about it. I, I have no clinical experience with it. I just want to think about it conceptually, you know, in, in terms of DNA fragmentation, we're talking about major compromises in the DNA. So you're talking about a kind of binary outcome, which bears out in the literature, you know, so you're going to have reduced fertilization and that's to be expected. There's fewer competent sperm there to get in there. I think what we should be focusing on more is this idea that comes from the field of hematopoiesis, you know, clonal hematopoiesis of indeterminate potential. We should be thinking about clonal spermatogenesis of indeterminate potential, because I think that's where the real risk is, one, because it's more occult, more latent, will not be noticed in these gross screens. And Two, you know, I think the capability, we're, we're getting there in terms of the capability with NGS that we can get resolution at the base pair level. I mean, the idea that we're going to submit all sperm samples for, you know, NGS and seek uh, for the, the whole genome seek for them or exome seek even maybe is a bit far-fetched now. But I think in some of these patients, particularly older men, where these spermatogenic clones have really grown to make up a, a significant proportion of the ejaculate, I think that those would be results. So I, I think there's a lot there in terms of NGS and sperm. I just think the resolution we have of looking at it right now doesn't really get at the real risk here. I think we're, as you just elucidated there or described, this paper shows that you know DNA fragmentation is not really going to bear out in terms of aneuploidy uh, or embryo quality. And that's kind of what I would expect in my thought experiment. I think we got to go to another level of resolution, which is probably a little bit scarier. All right. So we need smart people like you in the lab deal to sort this out for us, because it seems like it's a technical issue. It doesn't seem like it's a clinical issue yet. You need We need a better test. We need to really yeah. drill down on where the issue is, how do we overcome it? And sometimes running sperm through a microfluidic chamber seems great, but there's probably a more nuanced way to get it, tackle this issue and get better sperm to get into a, an egg. Yeah. So, you know, all of our patients are on these supplements, like we talked about, Molly, you know, we have them. Yeah, you can take coenzyme Q10. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Not all of our patients. Some of us don't recommend them, Blake. Okay. Okay. You know what I mean? <laughs> they're they're going to be on them regardless. You know, they come to your clinic, you're on these supplements. And of course, we'll give our two cents about what we think, what the data says. But what I'm trying to get at is there's so many studies coming out with DNA fragmentation. We have a lot of these patients on supplements or may or may not recommend them. Should we just have everyone take acai berry supplements and then use the Zymot with IVF and then just stop doing DNA fragmentation studies? Uh, or, should we, or should we do a testicular biopsy on every patient for IVF, regardless of their history? I think your practice is going to close if you're routinely recommending <laughs> testicular biopsy, but let me know how that works out. Hesse all. <laughs> A lot of patients who've just had an egg retrieval would love having their partners go through a testicular biopsy. Yes. That's true. Doesn't it? <laughs> That's this, true. Is, this is why Molly's on the podcast, the voice of reason. Right. Well, I don't think we're going to settle the DNA fragmentation index on this podcast, but we hope that you'll check out that article and check out the rest of the articles that are coming out in FNS Science reviews and reports. And a special plug to Molly, who's going to be a recurring co-host to talk about the Consider This section. If you've ever thought about waxing poetic about something um, related to our field, but it doesn't fit into the classic editorial manager categories of articles for FNS. Think about a piece that you want to submit on ethics, on um, an idea you have, on an article that's not being published on FNS, or something that's just topical in our field. Submit it through us on the FNS website, and we'd love to review it, have it posted online, and potentially talk about it on the podcast. 
that's all the time we have for today. Blake, Dalon, and Molly, um, thanks so much for joining. It's good to see you guys, and we'll see you guys and our listeners next month. Freeze your head. Freeze your head. <laughs> this concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air, brought to you by Fertility and Sterility in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This episode was produced by Dr. Michael Simone and Dr. Molly Cornfield. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect Fertility and Sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. 